Welcome everyone to our podcast, Land and People. I am uh, Melissa Kamara. I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. And I'm Clay Tranick. I'm an extension specialist in the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management in the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And um, we talk about people who are caring for places. And today's is a big, <laughs> a big heart, a big care in the sense that sort of talking about water. Um, which is kind of central to all places in Hawaii, uh, if not the world. And so kind of veering, I would say, a little bit more directly towards current events, despite the fact that this will probably come out a little bit down the road, but, you know, in particular thinking about what's happening on Maui. So we've been talking to our academics here, um, kind of threading the needle about many different issues. Dr. Tom Jambaluka, we spoke with last time. He's the director of Water Resources Research Center and um, Dr. Jonathan Lee Keke Scheuer. Dr. Scheuer is actually an old, old friend, <laughs> known him from, you know, the mid 90s to the early 2000s. And he served in so many different capacities. He's been he's assisted the Department of Hawaiian Homelands um, in the development and adoption implementation of Hawaiian Homes Commission um, on their water policy plan. He has worked in state and local, federal levels. I know he's also worked closely with Kamehameha Schools. And he's most importantly, as it relates to recent events, the co-author of the 2021 book, Water and Power in West Maui. Yeah, he's served on the Hawaii State Land Use Commission, the Oahu Island Burial Council, many different roles. Like a huge breadth of experience and the perspective I think that you he provides for um, how we care about this place, I think dismissive almost like say as, as a model, but like water provides this it, because it is so essential to everything, but it's also the way in which it's um, kind of enshrined in law, both mm-hmm. pre-colonial to current and modern. Um, it really is critical to understand our relationship and the ecological problems and ecological questions that we are often contending with how they are still grounded in in politics, like very, very explicitly. Yeah, we do really get into all of that, which actually that reminds me, we should say (laughs) that this podcast, what is the caveat that we usually talk about here? Uh, The the views and opinions expressed here are not those of our funders or the University of Hawaii, our employers or anybody. Um, We're really, again, it sounds cliche, but what we're trying to do is be able to have a space to talk about these things, talk about the history uh, in this case and, and current events. And I Mm -hmm. think what we are maybe, I mean, it's hard to talk about silver linings in the context of of, uh, the fires on Maui uh, that just have happened. But one of that is the fact that people are linking this to what we are doing with water, what we are doing with land, and you know how have those power dynamics been structured by history? Yeah. And so this direct line, literally back to pre-overthrow, right? Back to privatization, the kind of collision of, kind of global capitalism, frankly, with uh, Hawaiian lifeways, and where where that's kind of led us. And, and and you know we don't even really talk about the fire itself that much, but again, it's sort of it just every everything comes centered back to water. And it's just, I think, a testament to the people of Lahaina 
who are able to bring this up and point out this is what it's about. It's about how we have access to the resources that will allow us to care for this place in the future. That's going to like allow us to be better stewards, uh, be better caregivers to this place. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this is an, a pretty amazing, I think, um, episode with uh, Dr. Scheuer and we can't wait to... Um, have you listened? So with that, I'll go ahead and introduce our next guest, Dr. Jonathan Liakeke Scheuer of Kahalavai Consulting. Aloha, Jonathan. Aloha. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was trying to remember, Jonathan, how we first met. It was when yeah, I was, I was working for the. Yeah, I was feel like it was when I was working for the National Guard on their statewide, as they're you know managing the statewide lands. This would have been ninety seven or ninety eight. And who would you have been working for back then? Uh, ninety seven, ninety eight. I was still finishing my doctorate. Okay. Uh, okay. So I, I did doctorate, then I did a sort of one year postdoc for Kamehameha Schools. Okay. Um, and then, then I was on my own consulting and working with um, on what was then called the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands Coral Reef Ecosystem Reserve. Now, oh, Bubba. okay, okay, yeah. okay. It might have been then. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I gotta say we have been stalking you. It's true. Um, you know, we've been stalking. Well, you're among many people we're stalking <laughs> secretly. Not so secretly, but what made me especially happy with the visit with Clay was like the within two minutes we found three other connections that we yeah, had. Yeah, right? yeah. Of course. Um and so that Hawaii yeah. thing, right? The so Hawaii totally. thing. Totally. <laughs> One degree of separation, really. That I mean, you guys actually live close by each other or something, or yeah, I'm right down the hill from from where <laughs> you're at. And very uh, close to each other, and I know his sister-in-law. Yeah. And, oh, um, wow. Okay. And then I just randomly spoke with one of his neighbors. What well, was about fire? And then I started talking about water. And he's like, "Oh, my my neighbor does water stuff." And I was just like, "Is his name Jonathan?" Like, yeah. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's how I found out you actually you even lived in uh, in the neighborhood. Yeah. So, oh my goodness. Pretty well, funny. Dr. Scheuer, welcome to our podcast, Land and People. I thought we were, we're called water and people. Water and people. Water, land and people. Maybe we'll change the name. Just um, for the day. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time. I know you are incredibly busy. I feel like you and Clay have been taking a lot of media inquiries into what's been going on of Maui and other things. So, And in, in addition to all of both of you, your full-time work, two or three jobs, I'm sure, and kept packed into one. So we totally, I totally appreciate it. I mean, I'm just thankful people are making the connection to water mm -hmm. because it doesn't mm -hmm. always happen with with fire, right? And like in that, the, even just the land use and the fuels at all, people get so sort of wrapped up in like the response and the incident itself. And this is finally, finally, people are able to take a step back and and really grapple with like, oh my gosh, like what are we doing on these lands? And people understand the fuels and the vegetation side, but they this whole idea of 
the diversions of water and like how this, like how we got kind of inherited these landscapes. It seems to be a friend of mine. We'd like tease, like joke around, like everybody's conception of history, like starts after world war two, right? So, like, <laughs> you have to like extend their brains a little bit further back in yeah. time and to understand that actually this stuff is way, way important uh, for yeah. figuring out where we are now. Well, I love it because we're going to talk about fire. We're going to talk about water. We're going to talk about the elements <laughs> in this podcast. And before we get there, though, we want to hear a little bit about you. So, Clay, you want to start off? In the context of what you do now, like what were some formative experiences about where you grew up that kind of connected you to to that work um, and to your interests? Like we're talking about being excited to be with each other. And I don't think I've ever said this to you, Melissa, but like I've always like just super treasured our connection for one reason is I actually started off in college as an art major. Because, oh my gosh. Because in oh, high school, love it. my sanctuary was the ceramic slab. No way. A socially very difficult time, fairly significantly bullied. It was my safe place. And I was like, yeah. I just really loved it. And so I actually started out in college as an art major and I went to UC Santa Cruz. Um, and this was at the time when everybody only received narrative evaluations instead of grades. Okay. Okay. But then I'll I'll weave this into the question. Sure. Go for um, it. This uh, is good stuff. Born and raised on Oahu. My parents uh, moved as to Hawaii as settlers in 1950. Um, My father was a German Jew who escaped Germany in 33, early on, and then um, Europe in 37, um, put himself through undergraduate and then graduate school was drafted into the U.S. military partly partway through getting his doctorate, um, did amazing other things like yeah. worked at Nuremberg trials as a security officer and other things. Went back, finished his doctorate in chemistry on the East Coast. Um, my mother, who had also served in World War II, was working class from Baltimore, Maryland. They met. Uh, my father was offered um, two jobs in industry in the East Coast and a teaching job in the territory of Hawaii at the University of Hawaii. Oh my goodness. Um, Came to Hawaii in 1950. I'm the youngest of four. A lot of my career goes to, my mom was um, an activist. So I was was hauled along as a kid to, Mm -hmm. if you were Kamaina from Hawaii, you might remember PACE, People Against Chinatown Evictions, when they were doing uh, urban redevelopment in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. A lot of anti-nuclear work in the 1970s. So I was like speaking at rallies when I was like seven and eight. Um, <laughs> group active at the time, led by sister Anna McEnany and Ho'u'ipo de Canberra from YNI, Christians Against Nuclear Arms. And um, so sort of from my dad, who did ultimately focused on marine chemical ecology and sort of drug discovery from the oceans, but also started out doing terrestrial work. So lots of time in the mountains, lots of time in the ocean with my dad and then um, with my mom with activism. It's sort of like, okay, not super surprising how I ended up in my pathway, but I did, as I was saying, um, start out as an art major went to uc santa cruz as an undergraduate luckily because i so i went to ilani and like definitely a square peg in a round hole at that particular right, interesting yeah. um and um i think they the college counselor didn't think much of uc santa cruz and said okay that's kind of free advice you go there <laughs> it was a great fit <laughs> summer camp out there this place is amazing i did yeah. start out as an art major um but also because my interest started to take some of the background courses in environmental studies so right. economics and ecology and field ecology and um when it was time to declare my major um i was able to pull out these narrative evaluations 
And my narrative evaluations for all my environmental studies prerequisites is like, oh, Jonathan's a natural. This is really good. He's top of the class. <laughs> and my art ones inevitably started something along the lines with, um, well, Jonathan tries very hard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, you know, play to your strengths. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> oh, um, that's great. So, Melissa, you've actually been a model to me for how you pursue your art as well as your work in conservation. And you've been managed to bridge that particular gulf. And the longer I do this and the more I realize that the change that we need depends on telling good stories and touching yeah. people in ways that words and science do not alone um, yeah. lead to shifts in understanding. So, so I'm very grateful to you um, for that work. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you, you all know that, you know, the narratives in, in our humanities can at times be extremely dark and not inspiring. (laughs) So we need better ones. And, but I always try to, you know, tell folks, yeah, we, if you can have a moment rethinking what you're imagining either in a novel and a painting that's that's something and that's that's important however it is very different than the social justice work that you do <laughs> and that's day to day and um you know that that is the is really you know the devil's in the details so to speak and that's so critical and you know i mean i've been looking at all the things that you've been doing and i guess we'll talk a little bit about that but before we do i do want to know about you know, places that connect you to the, to the Aina and elsewhere, you know, can be anywhere. And I know it's always really hard to choose the one or yeah. five or whatever, but you know, where, where's your place or where are a few places that you love and that just nourish you? So many, but um, Manoa and the particular sort of section of Manoa, uh, Kapali Luahine that I grew up in. So privileged to grow up in there. Within Manoa, also across the valley, place Waiakeakua. Um, it's a stream, uh, a tributary of Manoa stream with its own waterfall that um, through hiking through the bushes as a kid, a lot of my, I think how, why I do what I do, it's like coming of age in the 80s, seeing the very, very rapid development of Hawaii, not mm-hmm. just Oahu, mm-hmm. um, but also across the, the growth of Mega Resorts and all the other islands. Um, and right. like, why why are things like this? Why do we do things like this? Do we have yeah. to do things like this? And then finding even in a place like Oahu, where my you know my friends from Maui or Kauai, right, or Malika, everybody was always like, yeah, you don't want to be like Oahu, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then mm-hmm. finding a place like Waikiakua, treasure, clear mm-hmm. water. Mm-hmm flowing street like in the thick of it like you're three miles from Waikiki or whatever yeah so I would say that's really important deeply important place but you know I did grow up on Oahu and I did grow up as a townie and so um, the work that I was invited to do with um, what is now the Waipaw Foundation is Mm -hmm. formerly the Hawaiian Farmers of Adelaide when the Sproats invited me to live and work there while doing my master's work on the political ecology of kalo cultivation on Mm -hmm. Why people were returning as communities to growing kalo. Yeah. Being in Halelea, that moku, and being with that particular family, mm-hmm. um, and learning so much that I didn't know. Right. And also on Waipa being a treasured place that was originally slated for development by Kamehameha schools into the 1600-acre Ahupua, north-facing part of Hanalei, and, uh, or next to Hanalei and um, Waioli, and 
in the 70s, the Kamehameha schools were going to develop it into 16, uh, the 1600-acre ahupa into five-acre gentlemen's agricultural lots. And 10 Hawaiian families from Halelea from the North Shore of Kauai came together to say, no, like we right. want this to be there for our community and came together as the Hawaiian Farmers of Hanalei and later the Waipa Foundation. And it's now like this kipuka of Hawaiian culture in the North Shore of Kauai. It's so important. And so, yeah. so the place and the history of the place and that particular um those particular ohana that came together um in a way that it's just paying such tremendous dividends um for for commandment schools as a trust but also yeah. for the Hawaiian community in that area i'll uplift those places because it's still continuing to accelerate i mean that's sort of like you know you can't seeing watching it happen in the 80s and i keep the same thing like growing up on long island where i came from and, and seeing that these crazy explosion of development over my life. And you keep thinking like, it's going to stop at some point and it just keeps going. It's like incredible. Jonathan, that's where you and I connected with um, Stacey okay. Sproat's place. That's it. That was it. Cause we were consulting with them when we were doing like Kekaha berm restoration way out on the West side. Somehow we got tied in together that through that, I think. And so 10 families, they're now helping to protect that area. Is that a fast forward? Like that's where we're at with them. Yeah. So at the time, Kamehameha school said, we don't give leases to nonprofits. Mm. <laughs> we give leases to for-profit entities. So this is right. the old trustees pre broken trust. Yeah. Yeah. And so they formed a for-profit corporation called the Hawaiian Farmers of Honolulu, and each Ohana had like one share. But then after the, the scandals at Kamehameha Schools and then yeah. the beneficiary spoke up and then the new strategic plan, which for the for the first time in the history of that trust said the attitude towards land and water Kamehameha for decades um, had been the purpose of our land and water holdings are to make money from right. so that we can educate Hawaiian children at Kapalama in a classroom. At the school, in the classroom, right? Yeah, right, right. After all the tremendous leadership and work of the strategic plan, they said, you know what, our Vai and our Aina have cultural value, have ecological mm -hmm. value, have community value, have educational value, mm -hmm. um, as well as economic value, which has really revolutionized how Kamehameha in many ways pursues its its endowment mission, um, yeah. but also its educational mission. And so- right. So they were allowed to reform as the Waipa Foundation, as a nonprofit foundation focused on stewardship of this Ahupua. And they went from being the sort of weird, odd program in the KS portfolio, like, oh, yeah, we own these hotels and we have these shopping centers and housing developments. And oh, yeah, and we have this kind of funny thing over there to like highlight it in their videos yeah. and song context and like, yeah, yeah, totally. Something that treasure. Uh, that's so gratifying that, that that these things can actually shift within our, our own lifetimes, right? And like relatively short, shorter periods. And which is, I'll just say, is a good thing, but also makes you appreciate that things can shift back sometimes too. For sure. Those things being dependent on the development, right? Doesn't make it accessible to every community, right? And that I think that's another challenge. And I, I'm not trying to go into this too deeply of a critique, but I, I'm like, struggling here sometimes thinking about some of these like as models and you're like without that kind of financial support behind it right like how do we replicate and how how is that um i mean again it's like what they're doing on the land is incredible the value is undeniable i mean it's it's like so clear yeah working with taro farmers and you sort of seeing this the surface water contention yeah. i mean we're <laughs> just, kind of delving into the book yeah. and into some of your lectures <laughs> and it's this idea that you know how we're thinking about groundwater versus surface water and then just that the disconnect there and yeah. obviously 
you know, it, it's sort of tapping into deeper trauma when you talk about diversions of water and, and the whole transformation of the landscape, which really like is stuff that I've been talking tons about lately, because that's really what put us in our current predicament with fire risk. But was that the bridge for you to say like, whoa, this is about what sustains these practices? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, getting interested in Kalo as a food got me interested in water and water rights. Um, yeah. And in the entire, pulling back to my earlier interest in land use planning and other issues, like how does how do these landscapes get transformed and what are the political and economic forces that drive change? What are the tools that are available within the particular laws and history of Hawaii that we have to to kind counteract that. So yeah, water in particular is, I feel still under, you said at the beginning of our call, like it is being uplifted a bit. And I'm very, very grateful for that. People are like, oh, right, water. Um, (laughs) You can't understand the dilemmas that we are in and the history of Hawaii without understanding the ways in which water is understood, addressed in law and managed on the ground and struggled over. Um, in many ways, you could say the history of Hawaii is the history of the struggle over water, even yeah. though we mostly talk about land and land ownership. Yeah. It really comes from a very Western perspective. You just lay it out so beautifully in the in the book we're referring to is um, Water and Power in West Maui that Jonathan co-authored with Bianca Isaki. And it really does a beautiful job of kind of explaining that like the land would be not thing without the water on it. All the sugar, like all the plantations knew this. I mean, it was, it was by design, um, all these diversions and, and sort of how they disrupted these traditional life ways to basically commodify the landscape, turn into this extractive economy. I'm more curious, and I don't know, this is a time to get into it, but this idea to me of water as this public trust, it's like one of these few clear examples of a commons that we have to me, this is getting into really larger questions about how we like, you know, look at quote unquote resources and commodities and all these things. And it's like, this goes way back into political and economic history, but how you think that the sort of depiction, but also legal status of water serves as a model for us to just better understand how we kind of care for the larger landscape. Yeah. I, I will say like mostly because of the abuse of Garrett Hardin, but um, in Tragedy of the Commons, but also through other things. Sometimes I, I get a little uncomfortable around the word commons and how it's, how it's used and deployed. Fair enough. A lot of things that were perceived as commons and open access were actually like managed under sort of right. very careful common property regimes, right? Um, right, right. But I love the question. And so the, I would love to talk a little bit just about that history. Please. The, I idea of a public trust is actually comes to Hawaii through multiple sources, the most ancient of which comes from Hawaii itself. But I'll talk a little bit first. The idea that certain natural resources are held in trust by the government and should not be privatized has not just occurred in Hawaii and actually comes to most of the United or all of the United States through Roman law and English common law. So the idea that rivers, navigable rivers, rivers you can put a boat on shouldn't be privately owned by anybody. So they could just put up a, you know, a toll gate <laughs> or something across the river, right? Put a wall. Yeah. Emperor Justinian codifies some of these principles of the public trust as it regards to rivers and rights of way. Then that's mentioned in the Mag- Magna Carta, right. um, that fish weirs, fish traps couldn't be put on certain streams by the lords because they were impeding people's rights to travel up and down um, 
rivers in what is now the United Kingdom that makes its way into English common law, which is adopted in almost every state in the Union, probably every state in the Union, including in Hawaii in the kingdom period. And so this legal concept that there's some things like air, like rivers are so important. <laughs> the, the, the harbors are so important to everybody that like the idea of owning them yeah. and managing them throughout solely through private property rights is just non-functional and insane. Right. Hawaii also, after some conflicts, and maybe I'll talk later about, specifically has a provision in our constitution that says all publicly held natural resources are held in trust by the state for the people. So we really explicitly, and that, doesn't just include water, but right. forests, the natural area reserves, the near shore environment, the sea to three miles out are held in trust as public trust resources. But really the origin of that in Hawaii comes to us from ancient Hawaii, where of course there was no private property in land and private property in water or other resources. The highest chief of a particular island acted as the owner of those resources, but not as their own personal property. Right. They were holding it or managing it with their konohiki and their lesser chiefs on behalf of the gods. Mm -hmm. And actually in um, this wonderful book from the 1930s called Native Planters in Old Hawaii, which Mary Pukui worked on, she recounts like this was essentially the concept of a trustee. They were acting as a trustee for this resource on behalf of the people. That understanding, which was cultural and religious and legal in ancient Hawaii, continued into the very first laws in the Kingdom of Hawaii. Right. So in the Constitution of 1840, they make it clear to say the king was the holder of the landed property, but not as his own personal property. He was holding it on behalf of the people. Right. Instills like a sense of responsibility, yeah. in other words. And then also, it's not yours to do with willy-nilly. And so that when... Right. Then there's this right tumultuous period that comes after the coming of Westerners to Hawaii, and particularly population loss. And so the the ali'i and the other leaders in Hawaii are looking for like ways to like, what do we do to right. address the fact that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are dying, our landscapes, right. which were once carefully managed, are starting to overgrow. And one of the things that gets settled on, particularly with prompting from missionaries in Hawaii, um, from New England, is the idea that private property is actually part of the solution. Mm. And there's there's some very interesting documents from missionary diaries and this survey that was sent out to missionaries around the kingdom in the 1840s about what's happening in your area, who how's the population, what's going on. And some people posit that like, actually, if we had private property, this is going to instill people to want to invest in their land and invest in their right. lives. And this will help make them better. So under all these pressures and this advice, the kingdom undertakes the Mahele through the legislature and the king. But really, really specifically, even though they create some private property rights in land, so they say, okay, we're dividing land among the chiefs and the commoners, and some things in land are not privatized, so rights to access undeveloped yeah. property for gathering of needed resources remain, and water is specifically exempted. Yeah. Right. Part seven of the Mahale Act of 1850, right? Rights to water and waterways will remain free to all on all lands granted in fee simple. Right. So very explicitly, water is held off as this, what we now refer to as this public trust resource. What happens in the period post-Mahale is because nobody nobody wanted to invest significant capital mm -hmm. plantations or ranches if they didn't have secure title to 
real property because yeah. it's too much right. of a risk that you're just going to lose it. And yeah. so that really allowed plantation era to take off in the islands. And you see the data on how much sugar is being produced and it just goes up exponentially yeah. over that period of time. And the transformation of landscape goes up exponentially. And as, as profits are being made that are really outstanding at the time, the economic power of the plantations not just extends to expanding their property footprint and how much land they control, but also they start to take over tons of water um, systems all across and divert water. We have, I think, about 378 perennial streams in Hawaii, streams that run year-round mm-hmm. Maokana Makai. Mm-hmm. And I think about 350 of them are diverted at least once. Exactly. And most of them, most of those diversions, if you've ever been to one, take 100% of base flow. So it's right. like wow. down across the stream and a gate and the entire flow of the stream drops into that. So everything right. below that is dry. Mm-hmm. And so this is happening all across Hawaii and the economic power also then in the late kingdom and the provisional government, right. so-called public of Hawaii, the territory, the power of these oligarchs extend to the judiciary. And so you start to see a whole bunch of court cases that start to forget those core legal mm-hmm. principles and say, oh yeah, it's okay. In this case from Maui, Peck versus Bailey, two sugar planters fighting over who who had how much water in the Wailuku River um, was for a while called the Iao Stream, the Wailuku mm-hmm. River in Navaiha, Maui. They were fighting over who owned how much water. And the court comes out with this opinion that says, oh yeah, it's totally fine to buy Kuleana lands that were used for growing taro, take those water rights and transfer them to previously unirrigated lands to grow sugar. They basically make the justification. It's just another crop. Like what's the difference? Yeah. Right. It's okay to take water from one ahupua and transfer it to another ahupua. Uh-huh. They also introduce these ideas that like if water is flowing in a stream and it's not diverted, that is excess or surplus water. And it right. lays the ground for what the court later says is water flowing to the ocean is waste. So like completely devoid of any ecological understanding, right? <laughs> right. Water flowing to the ocean feeds the muliwai, feeds the estuaries, feeds the near shore environment, feeds the fisheries that we depend on. Right. So these things transform over a hundred years to it's almost like water in Hawaii is private property to be bought and sold. Right. And that ends in the 1970s when first two sugar plantations fighting on Kauai go to court in the McBride versus Robinson case and they're fighting over who owns how much water in the Hanapepe River. And they go to circuit court right. and the judge says, okay, you guys own this many gallons per day. You guys own this many gallons per day. State of Hawaii, you own some land here. You own this many gallons per day. But it goes to the Hawaii Supreme Court, which is now, unlike in the territorial period, you have- They flipped it. This is from Hawaii. Yeah. Some native Hawaiians folks who are confirmed by a popularly elected Senate, um, appointed by a popularly elected governor. And so under Chief Justice William S. Richardson, who the law school is named for, they take this case and they say, you know what? None of you guys own this. And these previous rulings of the court where some of these justices, just as an aside, this isn't mentioned in the McBride cases, but just as an aside, many of these cases in the territorial period are decided by judges who like are stockholders in these sugar companies. Of right? course, of course. Right? Um, So like <laughs> no ethics. Yeah principle way we're supposed to have now. So this gets overturned. And then in this in 78 Con Con, they include this provision that water is a public trust, as well as the call for the creation of the what becomes the Water Commission, which is then passed in 1987. And we get into this modern era mm-hmm. of yeah. water match white. But so so it is just like play, like you said, we can't control which multinational investment fund buys the Grand Wailea and decides to, it wants to expand it or shut it down. Right. There's a huge amount of the way international and national capital flows through Hawaii that we have little control over. Yeah. Water, because it's a public trust and is governed by public trust principles, is this place where 
community-driven, historically-driven, culturally-driven values can actually play out on the landscape in a very meaningful way. It's so profound to think through what that might be or what what the possibilities are. I mean, we've seen, talking about West Maui, maybe we can get into this about the, I can't remember the term that you use, but essentially it's like the watershed for the water resources there. And Mm -hmm. um, that designation, maybe you can like bring us up to speed on the recent views, Navaiha, all of that, you know, Waiahole, you know, setting the stage for consideration of, you know, how water is going to be managed or not managed in West Maui. Yeah, so Hawaii manages surface and groundwater really in opposite ways. So we have these four public trust uses of water that I talked about that like we're supposed to protect those first and at least on paper, not always in practice, but at least on paper for streams. The state says sets interim in-stream flow standards, which is like the 50 cents fancy word for saying how much water should be in a stream. So it's a stream. Um, And um, meaning like, is there (laughs) enough water for ecological functioning? Is there enough water for abundant fish and wildlife in that stream for supporting of traditional and customary native Hawaiian practices for all those what are called in-stream uses um, before saying, okay, maybe there's water beyond that that we can take for off-stream commercial farming for treatment as into potable water for drinking uses. And, and so the, the legal mechanism we have in place for surface water has that in place for groundwater, the way the state has chosen to implement the water code is to set sustainable yields. They, they divide each Island into sectors and each sector into systems with boundaries drawn based on surface geology guessing that that represents what's happening underground Mm -hmm. and they say okay based on how much rainfall or other precipitation falls in that area we'll take only a percentage of that and that's the sustainable yield and that that goal though which it took me writing the book and like i had dealt with sustainable yield for 20 years not really understood the deep mechanics of how it was created sustainable yield is set to ensure that future withdrawals from wells will not get salty. So groundwater, mm. like surface water, flows Malkut Makai, feeds lower beds, contributes right. to stream-based flow, feeds alkaline pools, fish ponds, right. the near shore environment, provides buffering on climate yeah. change for coral reefs. But that is not explicitly, they we don't say how much water does groundwater need to stay in the ground to support those things? And then we'll take some out. Instead, it says, what's the maximum amount that we can take out? Um, and then it's we even more just... problematic when you when you go to Appendix J of the Water Resources Protection Plan and look at footnote, whatever, 57, and you realize that while the Water Commission acknowledges in those plans that Hawaii has gotten very much drier over the last decade. Stream flow and precipitation has decreased, and many projections show, particularly in leeward Hawaii, places like Lahaina or um, Kauaihae mm-hmm. or um, Kona or Honolulu, um, South Shore of Oahu, Waianae, even though that trend is expected to accelerate and continue, we set sustainable yields based on historic rainfall patterns. So we assume that the amount of water that's mm, going to be going right. into our aquifers is going to be the same as it was in the past, even though we know that's not true. And so like to bring it down to Maui Komahana, right. the aquifer immediately behind Lahaina, Launiopoko, and the one just to the north of that, the Honokuai aquifer. Honokuai aquifer, as of 2021, 
had a sustainable yield of six million gallons a day and was being pumped or having having water withdrawals at six and a half million gallons a day. La Unión Poco as well. Okay. And right. designation is like, okay, can we lower it to at least <laughs> six, right? Um, right? So there's parts of Maui, Komahana, West Maui that um, were already in like water crisis. Um, and designation mm-hmm. in many ways you could say came too late. Like, hey, we shouldn't have been over pumping mm-hmm. our aquifers to that degree and allowing salt water to start to rise in our wells. And how long will it take to reduce pumping to a level that we can become sustainable, even under the existing metric, much less looking at, you know, treasured cultural places. Like, so if you don't know, Lahaina was the seat of government in the kingdom. And there was a historic pond, Mokuhinia, in the middle of which was Mokuula. And that pond got stagnant after the plantation water withdrawals and then eventually dried up. And then the county of Maui, the territorial period, turned it into a baseball field. which is like, imagine mm-hmm, tearing yeah. down Iolani Palace for, and there is a strong desire yeah. to yeah. see that restored, but that will require both surface and groundwater flows to return to that place. Yep. So we need to manage water yeah. post-disaster in Lahaina and West Maui in a way that's so much far beyond what we've even done to this point. Mm-hmm, the voters of mm-hmm. Hawaii um passed these constitutional amendments in 1978 yeah. and calls for the creation of a new management scheme, which is in light of this court ruling that says, hey, the way it's been done for 100 years is not the way it's supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. So there was this anticipation that a year after the 1978 constitutional convention, the legislature would get together and pass a water code. Mm-hmm. And it took nine years wow. because of beefing between large property interests and business interests on one hand mm-hmm. and native lines and environmentalists on the other over what this code should contain. So so a lot of our state water code is part of the, there's a model, national model water code that was written in the 1970s to try and address water management issues around Hawaii. Certain states right. took it and adopted it pretty much in whole. Certain states modified it. In Hawaii, much of what we have in the water code is taken from that model water code. But there's this particular vision, which is particularly ironically in light of recent events referred to as the Maui Compromise. Hmm. So at the time um, that the code is being fought over the 1980s. Maui County in the early 1970s had signed an agreement with a bunch of large developers of South Maui. So McKenna, mm-hmm. Ihe, yeah. and they entered into the Central Maui Joint Source Venture Project, which said, in return for us drilling a whole bunch of wells in the EL aquifer, you will give us 20 million gallons of water per day. There were already indications by the 80s that the entire sustainable yield for the EL aquifer was not 20 million gallons per day. You were seeing salt start mm-hmm. to rise up into wealth. Wow. And so the state, even before the Water Commission existed, said, we think that we need to actually have some state regulation of these water resources. But Maui County at the time, the county government was like, no, we don't want the, the state to come in. The state yeah. to tell us how to manage our water resources. Yeah. So the Maui Compromise in the Water Code was that we have this not only are surface and ground managed differently in Hawaii, surface water and groundwater, but we have designated water management areas and non-designated areas. Right, 
Right. And so in designated water management areas, these principles that come out of the public trust, that there's certain uses of water which are supposed to be protected and prioritized over private commercial uses of water. Mm -hmm. In designated areas, there's a permit that's a public discussed permit and that can be legally challenged that looks at those impacts. So four uses have been defined by the courts as public trust uses of water, water left in its natural state. So the courts overruled that idea that water flowing into the ocean was a waste, whether it's from a stream or from groundwater. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said, no, that's a use of water. In fact, it's a priority use of water. Mm -hmm. Water used in the exercise of traditional and customary native Hawaiian practices, which can include call of farming, but can mm-hmm. include um, also gathering of stream species, which are dependent on Makai flows, right. include gathering of nearshore species like limu or fish or crustaceans that are dependent on Makai flows. It can also cover religious and spiritual uses of vai. Mm-hmm. Water reserved for or used by the Department of Hawaiian Homelands for homesteading, and then the domestic needs of the general public. So there's those four public trust uses of water. They're prioritized over private commercial uses of water. Mm -hmm. And so what the state's obligation and anybody else who manages water in the state or has influence, whether it's BLNR or the county boards of water supply or the councils, they're supposed to always like make these decisions and say, is there enough for these public trust uses of water? We're providing for those first. Mm -hmm. There's additional water. We will consider private commercial uses of water, but also the impact on those uses of our public trust uses. But in in the designation versus undesignated place, in designated areas, you have to get a water use permit. You file a water use permit application to get it, you have to document, I'm not harming DHHL, right. yeah. I'm not harming flow standards, I'm not harming groundwater dependent ecosystems, I'm not harming traditional customary rights. In undesignated areas, you're developing a well, mm-hmm. you get a well construction permit and a pump installation permit, but those are reviewed purely as engineering construction right. documents. Mm-hmm. So you get your permit uh, automatically as long as you filled it out correctly. Yeah. In Hawaii, all groundwater on Oahu, except for Waianae, is managed as a water management area. Groundwater on Molokai is under water management area designation mm-hmm. because homesteaders organized in the early 1990s after the passage of the code to get that protection against development plans from Molokai Ranch. Mm-hmm. The EO Aquifer, after like 20 plus years of beefing with the county, was finally designated when they were pumping more than the sustainable yield. Mm-hmm. Surface water of Navaeha, Waihe'e, Waihehu, Iao, and Waikapu streams was designated. And then on August 6, 2022, a year and two days before before the fires, Maui, Komohana, Lahaina, mm-hmm. surface and ground was officially designated as a water management area. And so for the first time yeah. since the plantations existed in that area, did communities start to have legal tools and public participation tools to say, right. here's where our VI should go. Is that sort of retroactive now in the sense that the current uses that are in progress have to then go back and say, okay, we're not having these impacts? Or is it fall to the people to be like, yo, what's going on? These guys are impacting us and take them on. So there's a, a period one year after a designation of a water source, existing water users have the right to apply for an existing water use permit. And those permits get considered before there's future permits. 
um, okay. used. Mm-hmm. And so those permits were literally due two days before the fire for the water commission. Right, right. right. Less than two weeks after the fire, Governor Green announced, oh yeah, we're going to have to undo designation. We obviously need to do it, which was something being called for by some large landowners. Yeah. Yep. And I will say the Koopa, the born and raised citizens of Lahaina and West Maui were like, we actually fought decades <laughs> for this. Yeah. To get yeah. this. Yeah. And when you understand the history of Lahaina and the understand the history of West Maui and that Lahaina was wetlands yeah. and yeah. Totally yeah. just thriving yeah. farmlands. Lele in the shade of Ulu, right? Malu'ulu or Lele. Yeah. yeah. That Lahaina burned in part because of the historic dewatering mm-hmm. of this landscape. And then to say like, okay, so the solution is to continue the dewatering. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Was to so many people just like, no, we're I mean, there's so much that was said and so much that could be said, but like doing the same things that got us into this problem are not going to be the ways that we get out. Right. And fortunately, there was a lot, there was some good debunking coming out after that because the thing that was like made me irate, I mean, this can started dating us. So these claims that like, oh, you see, if we didn't have to divert these waters, we had control. Uh, the developers, we would have been had a resource there for the firefighter. And it was just like nonsense, you yeah. know, given the given the situation that that was in. And I just kind of was sort of desperate to kind of explain that anything that could have prevented, which it was preventable, would have had to be in place like way before. Exactly. Years before, you know, like months and years. It's just not like a, a thing that would have like improved some magical emergency response. Yeah. Um, in fact, I will say that the owner of West Maui Land Company and a related bunch of water companies was quoted in the Washington Post. And I just, because not everybody heard this, they had an article about the role of invasive grasses in the fire. They also had this, this paragraph, developer Peter Martin, who was reached by phone, told the Post that the invasive grass was a, quote, red herring, end quote, to divert attention from the government's water resource regulations, which he said were so restrictive that they prevented farming or development of the land he owns. Quote, the truth is that I believe God, that God was angry, end quote, Martin said, saying that these lands were not being used, quote, as God intended, end quote. It's like enraging, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, no comment on that one. I mean, it's, I'm so, so glad that there has been so much pushback on that and the other mythologies out there and, um, it seems organized, you know, in terms of the messaging about that that's not true. That's absolutely not true. It's the opposite of that. Right. So it just speaks to the savviness, especially people on the ground, how they're telling the story. I mean, if you're, mm-hmm. they might not be getting quoted in the post necessarily, but some of them are getting some pretty good coverage yeah, they at, are. in the sense that, you know, this is like, this draws a direct line. The fire is a direct line back to these original diversions, the, the, you know, the destruction of basically subsistence, subsistence farmland and, and the wetlands that, that were surrounded Lahaina. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and I think it's important to, you know, this is like the spiel, but like important to understand that because it's not that the sort of outcome is that complex. Like you, <laughs> you convert all this this huge land area to farming and then, you know, plantation agriculture and you abandon it, all this grass fills in, but it just points again, which I I think your work is so important. It points to 
where we have to, you say it, uh, <laughs> and I think it was that, that civil beat things like you have to define the problem the correct yeah. way, right? And, and yeah, so you yeah. need to understand this whole historical context to, and it just, just to understand how complex the solution is going to be mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how it is rooted in these same battles that were happening long before this fire. Yeah, exactly. And I do want to talk about that because it's so brilliant. I mean, <laughs> Manu Meyer was like, Dr. Scheuer has like said it many times. And I agree, which is that, you know, you've said that like how we define the problem defines the solution. I want to hear what you mean by that. And I would love to hear what you what your thoughts are on homelessness, too, because that is so tied into a lot of what we're talking about here. You know, the social, environmental, economic. Yeah. I won't claim any expertise in homelessness in particular, but so yeah, how we define the problem defines and excludes what we include as part of the solutions. Right. Um, there's as there's actually some really there's a brilliant social scientist who super policy nerds know about named Harold Laswell who wrote a lot about this very concept decades ago. For me, it's become a sort of organizing principle in my life, whether it was in the conservation work that I do, in water management work and land use work, um, and recently, more recently in, in housing work, I will say, for instance, very explicitly in this recent proclamation on housing that was issued by the governor two months ago, which is being re-upped this morning as we speak, mm-hmm. the problem was defined as we don't have enough housing units. And therefore, the solution is to produce more housing units to address homelessness, local families moving away, the cost of units, and a host of other problems related to housing. Housing and its its great expense is a multifaceted, um, yeah. and why we have homelessness is a really multifaceted and complex and in Hawaii historically rooted problem like so like i mean there's so many things to be said but if you don't talk about land dispossession from native hawaiians yes part of the history yes our housing crisis in hawaii i'm not sure how you can get to the idea that it's simply a problem or you 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 can ignore if you ignore that then you can say oh it's just a matter of units we have rather than like native hawaiians are disproportionately represented in the homeless population and they have been the subject of centuries of land loss. Um, There's a total lack of acknowledgement in that definition of that problem that by and large, housing affordability is a global issue. Yeah, It is a global issue. There's a few bright spots on the landscape. Tokyo seems to be doing certain things that gets housing to an affordable range. Vienna has some housing that does things. Um, But it's not just Hawaii. And so the assumption that by removing basic protections for native Hawaiian burials and environmental review and the state land use law, that we can somehow produce all the housing and solve our affordable housing crisis ignores that very obvious global factors like interest rates and timber supplies and steel (laughs) supplies and concrete supplies affect housing. And just the movement of capital, right? Like obviously people's incomes is how we define whether housing is affordable or not, but there's no executive orders. And it's unthinkable and sounds absurd if you say it out loud. There's no executive orders to order people to pay their employees more. Right. 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 But like literally housing affordability is a function of the relationship between the price of a housing unit and income. I think biggest and people have talked about this in various direct and indirect ways in Hawaii. We have one market for housing 
but it actually has two very distinct uses. One as an investment vehicle, right, mm-hmm. right, and one as a dwelling place, right, right. And so, when you start to ask questions like that, and you look at the Kakaako skyline at light, which has thousands of new units, and most of them are dark, dark, yeah, they're being used as investment mm-hmm. vehicles. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, we actually do okay at producing housing units or at least habitable units. And in fact, right instantly, like there were enough units in West Maui to put people shelter above people in hotels, right, right. And now the thing is, the last I heard was, okay, 30 days from now, we're going to have to clear everybody out from walls. And I would just say, honestly, one of my first questions was, why? Yeah, exactly. Could we not buy one of those hotels? Like the Royal Lahaina Resort sold a few years ago, 2021, for about $450 million. And it has 500 plus rooms Mm -hmm. at the -hmm. per room price was about six or seven hundred thousand dollars which is now they don't all have kitchens right and so like you'd have to do some retrofitting but like you could take a third of the you put a third of the units that were lost in lahaina back into availability for local families in one transaction Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for a per unit price that's a lot less than what most things go for right but that doesn't seem to be part of the conversation (laughs) the answer the solution because the problem is defined in a way to exclude those possibilities. Possibilities, yeah. Right, well, it, it, it sort of exculpates like any sort of like responsibility landing on government entity to actually like just absorb a cost, which is like the society has to say, this is worth it. Do we provide for people in need? It doesn't, it's not going to, nor should it have to pay for itself, which is kind of the argument with fuels management around a, around a community. It's like the safety of that community is worth Worth the cost, and this gets into the whole thing. I'm, I don't even want to go there because I think we'll go off the rails. Um, as far as like thinking about water and like payment for ecosystem services is, is another sort of trap. I feel like because you know it cuts down to this point of like people trying to put dollar values on these things that have just this intrinsic worth and you say okay this is <laughs> it's worthwhile therefore we need to there is a cost associated with taking care of it but- well, well i mean i think we can do the numbers which is six billion dollar cleanup of lahaina you know that's a whole other yeah animal but yes yeah so we can't i mean not to mention i don't even know if that figure even covers like the lost revenue um no right i mean it's it's staggering I mean, I think we can actually do the economic analysis based on like, you know, maybe 10 Lahainas out there or whatever they are. I, I have no idea what they are. But I think part of right our, our call and our work, um, the work that you guys do, the work that I try to do is to to live in the paradox. Yeah. Yeah. So like, we actually kind yeah. of need an economic analysis and talk about ways that funding for fuel management and funding for stream restoration mm-hmm. and funding for water protection mm-hmm. becomes integrated in a circular form into our economics. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. At the same time that we have a foot firmly planted in the lo'i or the, yep. the stand or, or the, the, the aina of your choice that says like, and this is not for sale. This is fundamentally a, a heritage that allows us to survive on this brilliant and beautiful planet. Yeah. Yeah. The duty to it has nothing to do with dollars and cents and has everything to do with our intimate biological and spiritual relationship with this place. Yeah. I keep coming back to this idea of like the cost of like, you know, see so everyone's saying, okay, if we protect this per acre, you know, payoff for a or an ecosystem, or whatever. And I just keep coming back to this. Like endangered species is a, is an interesting one too, because you're like, well, 
you know, do you want it to exist or persist? Right. And, and like, how important is that to you? Then it costs, the cost of that is like how the labor, right. It takes and, and what it takes to pay someone a living wage to keep, to keep doing that, uh, to yeah. do that kind of work. Um, so yeah, you have, you can get into costs quite, quite easily. Um, they're incompatible ways of looking at the world, but they're both actually have value and we have to somehow occupy these spaces. Yeah. Where we acknowledge both of yeah. them and, and live with that inherent contradiction mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. A lot of kind of what we're talking about is, and part of this contradiction, I think, is the fact that, you know, when we think about education and like sciences in particular and this disconnect. So this is actually kind of circling back to where part of where our conversation started. I, I'm getting more and more convinced it's it's actually by design, but this distinction, the separation sort of between the humanities and between the sciences. And um, you had mentioned this, and I'm not sure all listeners are familiar with this field of study with political ecology. And I'm wondering what you might say to, um, you know, say someone that's coming into a student that's coming in and they're interested in studying hydrology or aquatic sciences and, and how to sell to them, like the importance of understanding, like what is political ecology and how does it help us understand the value of of the work? And maybe they're just going to run a run models and stuff, but just this perspective that you're kind of providing is so fundamentally important. As a preface, the way I use political ecology, the particular school of political ecologists that I learned under, there's other schools. So it's my, might be other, you might hear the term used in a different way, but so um, it emerged out of folks in the social sciences who were working with natural scientists trying to explain environmental change. Right. And there were two like big schools. One were the political economists who were looking at global capital flows and international and national policies to say, oh, the reason why, for instance, the Amazon is being deforested is because of liberalization of economic rules in Brazil, um, the military junta and some other you know forces that were on the it, it, global demand increasing for beef mm-hmm. that were leading to these things. And so they would say, okay, that's our explanation. Why is the Amazon being deforested? And then you had folks in sociology and particularly in anthropology living in villages on the frontier saying actually so like these were people who were driven from favelas in inner city brazil by poorly planned national policies and personal economic hardships who were forced out into this area who were clearing forest and so political ecology arose in the social sciences as a way of combining that sort of those two that top down and that bottom up view to try and get to a more holistic explanation of why do these massive environmental problems erupt and how do you go about understanding them both by sitting and being with the people who are experiencing and part of these transformations as well as by understanding these things and the best political ecological studies also work in an interdisciplinary form with natural scientists so that they're understanding what's happening in the immediate environment as well as transformations to you know, multiple scales of ecological processes. So what would I say to a young person getting into that and why it's important? Um, being able to define the problem is critical to find the problem. Um, <laughs> I know. It seems so obvious given where we're, where the conversations know, come from. It seems like a, almost like a dumb question. I would say. You want to make a difference in the world, you got to understand what's happening at the most intimate of scales as well as right. the largest of scales. Yeah then we work on how to connect among each other. Exactly. Yeah. 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 To bring yeah. about the change that we not only need, but 
There's there's this quote from Arundhati Roy, another world is not only possible, she is on her way. Mm. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. That's beautiful. And, and yeah. for our listeners who don't know who Arundhati Roy is, she wrote The God of Small Things, which I think I read two or three times <laughs> 20 years ago. It does go to Maui Kumohana and what's happening there, like in the midst of this truly unthinkable destruction. It's hard to it's hard to understand it. I mean, it is hard to understand it, but it's not <laughs> because it's pretty fundamental in terms of like the transformations and you know what needs to happen on the land, which is not, which in and of itself is a very hard thing. But when we think about you know, green spaces and, uh, you know, home hardening and, you know, all of this that has, has to happen in the fire shed. It's pretty straightforward in terms of like what that might look like, you know, how the yeah. specifics of it are altogether like complicated and vary from community to community. But what's really heartening is to see like, for example, um, folks out there, I didn't even know this, but there's like seven Ulu like the, from the olden days, like 200 years, I don't know how old they are. There's like seven of them, but they don't know if they're alive yet. But they're trying to, you know, restore. And that's already like thinking through what might be possible out there. The green sprouts for me have been the way community has come together and led. Yeah, yeah. it's um, incredible. From the very basics of like setting up their own distribution centers yeah. and yeah. hubs. Yeah. Or FEMA. <laughs> <laughs> And somebody said, like, yeah, you know, FEMA showed up and found Kanaka Costco, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, they're like, wait, what? What's going yeah. on? And like, so, yeah. and and the articulateness of leaders like Kiyomoku Kapu yes. or Hachikapa yeah. or yeah. or Alakiko's um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Tamar Paulton yeah. mm-hmm. just see so clearly what's going on. And I know, it's like, get that out. Yeah, it's been, yeah. Fantastic. I know. Oh. Tiare has been like all over social media. She's been just like giving briefings like every other. If you guys don't know who Tiare Lawrence is, go check her out because she has some wonderful. She's been highlighting a lot of the work that, you know, Archie uh, Kalepa and others have been doing. Um, it's just incredible. And, and it's also a huge... Um, I worry for that community, frankly, because Lahaina strong. We want Lahaina to be strong, but there's a lot of mental health that um, some of my friends have been posting on, you know, that's not really being talked about for all the stigma reasons. I, I worry, you know, about that as like the number one top of the list need that needs to um, happen. I have a girlfriend who's going out there and doing counseling from Oahu when she can. But that's a huge need out there. Um, first responders are tough, but it is hitting home. I think that's that's what I meant when I when I was saying it's hard to understand. Yeah. It's like the sort of the impact beyond just the destruction itself. Yeah. This is going to be something that's going to sit with people for yeah. like a generation exactly. you know, and, and, and sort of have repercussions. But that that is like like you said, the green sprouts. I mm-hmm. like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what what's kind of filling in and um you see such a strong response via mutual aid and just, again, like unprecedented, just amazing. When we think about the bigger picture solutions, not just to recover in um, Lahaina, but also just transformative change we need to see in our landscapes to prevent another disaster like this. Mm -hmm. and And the role of government that maybe we need you know, some would argue you might you need a strong state. You need like you know government support to f- 
sort of float a lot of these efforts. You think there's a danger in this space right now of people, like their trust is being eroded, right? Like they, 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 st- um, and that's what I worry is like, is there, does this compromise some of the potential to work with thin those systems to, to make change in the future. Yeah. We are at an inflection point. Well, so crisis doesn't transform people, at least initially, so much as it brings out what was already there. Right. And um, the strength of of leaders in Lahaina, um, right? And then the opportunism of some. So, yeah, we're definitely in the midst of a huge battle in Hawaii for our future, not just for Lahaina, but everywhere. Will we have these these large government regulatory programs that control how much land is transformed from productive agricultural land into urban landscapes? Will we have a strong and strengthened water commission that will actually do its job around Hawaii, fulfill its koleana to protect public trust resources while allowing for economic growth and commercial Mm -hmm. uses? Or will we, in the name of jobs or housing or economic growth, in the midst of a very confusing and occasionally manipulative media and social media environment, allow those things to be rolled back or changed? Especially, as you said, Clay, when some of the the actors in media and social media are very deliberately trying to undermine trust in government and trust in each other. I mean, yeah. we saw yeah, yeah. everything from like Chinese right. Chinese um, propaganda about right. there being space lasers. Crazy um, stuff, yeah. To much more insidious comments by elected leaders that like, oh yeah, this is the problem of what's going on. So we're at an inflection point. Mm-hmm. It could go either way, honestly. I'm... yeah. I've been more discouraged and scared than I've ever been in this work at the same time as being more encouraged and hopeful that we might, because it's not, it's not a zero sum game in the end. Right. A strong and resilient landscape to fire among the things that it provides for us, other than like basic human safety is an assurance to capital. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a good place to invest. My shit won't burn down. Yeah, no, I know. It's so um, ironic. It's like crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. There. yeah. Well-regulated water resources means, you know what? I can build a hotel that has a 50-year um, operational yeah. expectancy and not think that it's going to have only salty water in 30 years. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. These systems can work in a complementary <laughs> Right. We have a slightly longer time. Totally. Frame. Or like a community that's not broken. Yeah. <laughs> like a, a community that's not like broken by health and, and you know, Homelessness uh, just and, job security. Yeah. You know, it's like I. Yeah. So many things. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so crazy. Um, well, you know who's been really inspirational? I just want to give her yet another shout out <laughs> is Dr. K- Katie Camilla Mella on her social media. She's been amazing because she's been really trying to hold space for the vision you know, both within the, the nation, within Hawaii and, you know, the reality of, of what that means. Um, and and specifically, she's done incredible stuff on just, you know, engagement, civic engagement, looking at like what just I'm making this up now, like 70, 80 percent, you know, or 70 percent voter in, seven, in the 1960s and 70s down to 50 percent. And she's like, there's all these different ways, you know, all of these vacant positions. And we're talking about like everything from the neighborhood boards on all the way on up, just vacant. Yeah. 
vacant from people, regular people. Um, and, you know, she's just very, very straightforward in wanting to have a conversation that isn't ta- centering the settlers and, but is centering the people. She's yeah. rather, she's pretty, um, tired of having that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, go girl. So I mean, I I think like that engagement piece and like civics 101 is so critical, right? Yeah, no, Uh, it is so critical. And it's right. I mean, and no doubt meetings are irritating. Right? Democracy is very frustrating (laughs) and slow process. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Right. But to paraphrase Winston Churchill, right, is the worst form of government except for everything else that has been tried. Um, (laughs) In terms of like at what scale do we define problems to? I'll just throw out, right, we're in this globally, this trend of like looking to strong men, Mm -hmm, it's always men, mm -hmm. um, almost always men, to lead us out of these things by cutting civil liberties and cutting other kinds of protections that mood that has um, swept across the world, we're not immune from that either. And so there are some people who are like, oh yeah, let's just like get rid of these things because like it takes too much time and it's too irritating right. to be a strong leader to just lead our way through it. But um, what we lose among the many, many, many things we lose when we go for solutions like that is um, the connection with each other mm-hmm. and each other's voices totally. and yeah. each other's the collective wisdom, which is always greater Totally. Yeah. And the idea of an individual person. Exactly. Exactly. And just you lose that capacity for people to be heard, right? Like at any down at that, <laughs> the ground level. Um, and I think that's that fear that's coming out of when you people from Maui talking about this, that like, are we going to be listened to? Right. Yeah. And, and that sort of, it's, so it ties right back into all of those processes that we are maybe apathetic about or, um, you know, uneducated about in many respects. Or distrustful of or uh, whatever. But yeah, and distrustful of. So um, kind of battling a lot of kind of precedent there, unfortunately. Yeah. We all know this in our respective fields. We're in a situation where we actually need to double or triple or quadruple the amount of effort that we've been doing. Right? Yeah. Oh my God. Whether, yeah. and whether it be actual on the ground work or regulatory yep. work. Yeah. Or things, yeah. It's like, we're fighting over like, is this enough? And really this like four times is what we need. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, I mean, that's the challenge before us. Yeah. It's going to require on those of us as we do in our homes, as visitors do, as businesses do to use water ever more efficiently and carefully to you know, tread a little lighter, reduce our pressure on the natural systems that sustain us so that we can all get what we need. What do we use it for, right? That whole thing of like, this is how much comes out. Where is it going? And, you know, and I'm just like pulling my hair out and literally standing in Makaha Valley as the entire valley's on fire. It's in 2018, three valleys burning at once on West Oahu. They're burning up over the mountain into the next valleys over. And the only thing not burning is the golf course, right? Yeah. It's like the only thing that's not literally on fire. There's helicopters running. And I'm like, it's like you say, talk about living with contradictions, right? Yeah. Like this is, there is some power for the public to come into these spaces, right? Mm-hmm. And so we do have some, maybe power is, uh, depending on how, how well we kind of organize and understand the problem, right? Yeah. No, and that's what water is, this this wedge, this um, this one space, the governor of Hawaii or our congressional yeah. delegation are not in the on boardrooms in New York mm-hmm. where they're looking at spreadsheets and deciding, yeah, you know what, we're going to divest of X. Mm-hmm. And right. suddenly 5,000 people will be out of work. Right. But we have a water commission 
with a constitutional duty to manage water and consistent with the public trust and on our behalf. Yeah, absolutely. To hold public meetings and in designated mm-hmm. areas, if somebody wants water, their permit gets noticed in the paper and online and you have a right to comment on it. And if it's going to harm you, you have a right to object to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. These things are long and messy and complicated and they make Hawaii Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is to me a fully worthwhile trade. Um, yeah. But yeah, okay, we'll sit in a few more meetings. But if it means, um, <laughs> what other choice do we have, truly? Right. You know, we have to. I just recommend everybody to grab your book again, Water and Power in West Maui, because you just see that first case that you mentioned right on the heels of, you know, mm-hmm. the overthrow. And it's like, it's the same battle, right? It's, it's incredible how relevant this history is to sort of to understand where we are now. Yeah. That case, Horner versus Kumuli'ili. Horner was one of the owners of Plan- Pioneer Mill, like yeah. a name that I don't know that would fly nowadays, <laughs> but the sugar right. plantation. And they were suing all these Hawaiian taro farmers in Kawaula Valley, the same valley over which controversy erupted over whether there was enough water being diverted from it right. to protect luxury home landscaping mm-hmm. on August 8th. And yeah, that case was in 1895 was decided on and decided in favor of the Kalo farmers, though ultimately, of course, Pioneer Mill ended up mostly transforming that landscape. But like some of the farmers, you can see the name Palakiko as one of the defendants mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. in that case. And you know that the Palakikos are continuing to farm their land in Kawaula Valley. So there has been remarkable persistence. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know where to throw this in. And I love science fiction and especially like climate change science fiction and other science fiction as ways of understanding the insanity that we're living in. And when all the stories came out that like a space laser had been aimed at Lahaina, right, to like burn it, I'm like, yeah, no, but how else do you explain the transformation of Lahaina in the last 150 years before the fire? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. This incredible force that transformed an entire, yeah. like, like there's something there to like, maybe that would make people understand colonialism and dispossession. Totally. I think that the urge, you know, in terms of like the conspiracy stuff, the urge is to look at it like a James Bond film. Like if only there was just the one bad actor, you had to take the bat one person because that would like... It would be like Lord of the Rings. It's like, we just have to get rid of the ring. Unfortunately, it's so much more like opaque than that in terms of like how many different folks are involved Mm -hmm. and, you know, economic interests. And it's like, it's easy to sort of like think about these things in conspiracy versus like the complexity of what we're living with for a long, long time. And you, you guys say it really beautifully in that, in like the last chapter in the book and it, just saying how the distance from that violence, right? That may, it sort of yeah. somehow makes it more digestible or something, you know, where, where it, and I think honestly, and that's, we need to be really more cognizant of how violent like the space laser, like that it wasn't a space laser. This was like people doing this to other people. Um, but just to be, to understand that that, disruption was just so it's just this legacy we're still grappling yeah, with right yeah, we, yeah. we can't yeah we we cannot we have not <laughs> resolved any of that and so it's still here with us and uh, and i don't think enough people quite understand and then these events happen again like this is so unprecedented as far as the, the you know con- talking about the fire in lahaina but um it's to me it's just a direct line back to that and uh yeah yeah it is it is 
the, and the legacy of that and the people, you know, the folks that were in the provisional government and in the territory and, you know, the elective. I mean, it's all part of that, you know, and so unwinding that is monumental. And it makes your work very precious yes. in a way like that. Holy crap. This is we're still dealing with yeah, this we stuff. Are. And, uh, we are. Yeah. I mean, you say my work, uh, you said a few times, like, I've been so privileged to learn at yeah. the feet of the rapoons in Wyoholic. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, totally. Uh, legal scholars like Kapoor Spartan, Isaac Moriwaki, and George Cooper. And um, yeah, for thanks sure, for that. sure. And to be trusted by groups like MMS Schools and the Office of Point Affairs and DHHL to like help them articulate and defend their rights. And, and most of all, folks in community like the like John and Ro- the late John and now Rose Dewey in, in, um, in the EAO and the other farmers of Puyo Navaeha. Um, I just, I want to acknowledge that, that did just to thank you for that too, because I've been kind of like desperate to say, you know, in this fire context, like I'm not the only, like, this isn't me, no. right? I mean, this is learning from so many people right. who have seen this kind of coming down the line. And so yeah, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, acknowledging all the, all the folks that we kind of learned from. Yeah. When I was uh, getting my doctorate and writing about the Waiholi water case, I think it was Uncle Paul Rapun introduced me to some others at the Malkaloi. He's like, oh, this is like, this is our biographer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's fair enough. Like, um, I'm writing about this struggle. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't do justice to the biography of their particular lives, but, mm-hmm. um, but that struggle at least maybe. There's so much, as you say, you know, the furtherance of what we're doing is built upon all of these movements from, you know, that go, that go way back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as somebody who is from Hawaii, but not necessarily of Hawaii in terms mm-hmm. of my ancestry. So what I have gained and learned is in the reverence for ancestors mm-hmm. that pervades Hawaiian culture. They're not my ancestors, but I can honor them and benefit from them mm-hmm. in a meaningful and really for me, at least deep way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's this opportunity that we all have in Hawaii to tap in to that that history and that genealogy, not in an exploitive, not in a displacing way, but in a way that says, like, you know what, there's this lived wisdom and yeah. there are descendants still with us and among us. And that by honoring those descendants still with us and among us and honoring the knowledge and wisdom gained um, things, ideas like water should not be held as private property, (laughs) but should be held in trust are ways in which we can, even as those who were fortunate enough to be born in Hawaii or come to Hawaii as in later parts of our lives, we can connect with what is really in many ways, the soul of this place. Beautiful words to end by. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Scheuer, this is an amazing conversation, one we totally. long, long wanted to have. So I'm so glad that Clay and I have been not so secretly stalking you. <laughs> <laughs> Super fun. <laughs>